Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. My name is Ryan Miner, and you're listening to a minor detail on the Change Montgomery County Radio Network. And tonight we have a very special episode. We are celebrating Financial Literacy Month, and I have a distinct pleasure of having the president of Change Montgomery County in our home at our table, uh, Frank Howard. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be here, Frank. I'm I'm very excited about this show because we're talking about a aspect that we practice every day. It's economics. It is how we manage our finances. And this month is National Financial Literacy Month, and it's recognized every month or every year uh, as the month of April. And it's an effort to highlight the importance of financial literacy and teach Americans how to establish and maintain healthy financial habits. And tonight we're going to talk about, we're going to talk with someone who owns a financial company, who plans financially, and he's right here based in the Rockville area. He's a certified public accountant and a certified financial planner. And throughout the show, we're going to talk about how we can plan our personal family budget, smart family consumer science, and making those smart economic decisions on the daily. And Frank, we're going to dip into your area of expertise, and that's investments, planning for retirement, buying a house on a monthly mortgage, paying for college, how to save, and the financial instrument instruments required to build up our portfolios. And the key word tonight, I'm going to use this, diversity. Diversity in our portfolios. And Frank, so let, let's jump into it. We're going to have John. He's going to, he's, going to, he's going to call in. I'm sorry, Joe. I want to make sure I get that right. Joe Jacques. He's going to call in about 910. So let's kick this off. Okay. Being that this is National Financial Literacy Month, introduce kind of your career and tell us about you and what you have done, and and that'll make sense in the broader scheme of why you are on the show tonight. Well, thank you, Ryan. As a matter of fact, uh, when you invited me to be on this show and you told me the topic, I was very excited because this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. It has been uh, since I was. 17 or 18 years old, which is kind of hard to explain because I do not uh, come from a uh, silver spoon and mouth uh, background <laughs> at all. Uh, my parents and everybody that I grew up with uh, have, have marveled at, at my career, and they've often wondered, how, how did you get interested in this, Frank? Because right. your parents certainly didn't teach it to you. Uh, it's just something that you glommed onto, and I, and I think it's a very important topic, and I'm here to uh, help you uh, speak to the, to the group along with our special guest, who's a professional. And I think it's a very important topic. Who doesn't want to take care of their family and provide uh, for college for their their kids, if they have any, and also to provide for a good retirement? That's right. Beginning, we're we're sitting here in a home, and obviously the first step in maintaining our, our financial security, it starts at a young age. And that's what we want to teach our kids about how to spend money, not only how to spend money wisely, but the steps they need to take to to be fiscally responsible in their daily lives. So, you know, Frank, what do you, if you, if you had a, a 10-year-old in front of you and they asked you, okay, Frank, what's the most important thing I should be learning at a young age? What would you think that, how does that relate into their finances? What, what should someone that is young, maybe beginning at 
18 or 19 do to begin to be responsible in their daily lives financially? Uh, let me take them both in order, uh, Ryan. Uh, good question. I believe that my upbringing has some in impact or bearing on my answer to the first part. If you have a, a child, 9, 10, 11, 12, whatever the age in the house, I think one of the best things you can do is, since they can't go out and earn money on their own uh, in a job, of course, right. not at that age, is to give them an allowance and to let them understand the basic concept of purchasing power. And when they've spent all their money, they've spent it. And they have to understand that when they want that ice cream cone or candy bar or whatever it is that they want, uh, they've spent their money and they can't. And that sense of loss, even for a child, I don't get my candy bar. Oh, makes them stop and think about uh, purchasing power and managing their money. And then as they get older and you're, as you say, 18, 19 years old, uh, you're either going off to college or you're uh, starting your career. Maybe you're on your own, maybe you're not. I think one of the most important things is to understand the wonderful, delicate balance between your income, the money that you make, and, and your outflows, if you will, and that, of course, are expenses, the money that you spend. So, Frank, I was reading, reading an article uh, by the Huffington Post, and uh, it, it, it's called 13 Money Management Lessons for Kids, and it was written, uh, in fact, this past April, or this past on April 20th, and it said that, that research shows that America's youth, they have a deep, and a deep lack of understanding when it comes to finances and how to properly manage money. And they, they list a statistic, and they said that it's generated a national movement now to incorporate financial literacy into our education system and encourage parents to teach money management lessons at home. And it's true, because we want our parents, we want our, our children's parents, we want to start teaching these lessons. And some of the lessons and the, the tips they give, they write this article specifically for parents to share with their kids. And let me just read you a few, and we can comment. So one is... Use cash, okay? The next is bank and ATM visits, which they say that visiting the bank or the ATM is a great way to explain where money comes from. Kids will see that the bank doesn't just give away money. It's a place to store money that we've earned. Keyword, earned. Not given, but earned. And it's a place where you can go if you take out a loan. And as we know that most local banks, they're, they're going to be happy to provide a quick tour of their location which will show how your kid's money is stored and transacted. Another item on this list is gro grocery shopping. You teach your child, when you take them to the grocery store, smart and basic money management habits, the benefits of comparison shopping. And one thing that, we've, that I've had a tough lesson to learn, and I, I grew up, uh, my parents were fiscally smart in what they taught me, but that a brand name doesn't always mean that it's better, okay? With, with some foods, and, and Kim and I actually buy a lot of store brand names because it tastes the same and it's similar, but I know that some people, they just like to have that brand name. Um, and then the big one, and we'll talk about this, and let's we'll go right into it. It's wants versus need. What do we need to survive versus what do we want and how much can we afford? And at the core of good money management skills, it's the ability to distinguish between those wants and those needs. And for example, people need food to survive. Kids, kids want a new toy or a video game, and, or in Kim and I's case, our, our, our uh, daughter Paige, she wants a new Barbie doll. 
she wants a car at eight years old. <laughs> uh, Josh wants a new drum set. Uh, Josh wants to, but it's important that we teach them that they must earn that first by working and putting their minds to, to task and, and earning that. And, uh, you know, look, we, people need to, that we need food to survive, but they don't actually need those new video games. And, and I think in kids, this is going to build a foundation for appropriately managing these finances, even to well into their adult uh, careers. One of the items that I am personally in favor for and advocating on its behalf is the expansion of financial literacy programs, even beginning at a middle school level. I remember when I was in middle school, Frank, I took a class called Family and Consumer Science. We learned how to cook. <laughs> we learned how to write a check. We learned how money is, uh, how, how taxes are paid. And we're talking, this was back in, gosh, 1995, 96, 97. I mean, I was five, you know, 10 or 11 years old and my was very fortunate. My middle school had this class, and it was one of those remember those memorable classes because you actually took away a life skill. And I think that think about this: if kids begin to take maybe a, a, a basic accounting class or a consumer class or how to manage and balance their budget, beginning in <clears throat> um, middle school or let's say their ninth or tenth or eleventh grade year. I mean, I think that these courses are such a uh, they're so important because that's what it's all about. And I'm 30 years old, and the number that we care most about is oftentimes our credit score, how much money we can. What do you, what do you think about that, Frank? Uh, Ryan, I'm smiling uh, as, as you're talking, and I hope that as I say the following, uh, some of our listeners are smiling as well uh, when they when they hear what I have to say because they can relate to what I'm saying. Uh, I'm a generation older than you. I'm 53, so my thoughts go back to when I was uh, – about that age, um, junior high, uh, in the 70s, and we called it HOMEC. Which was, <laughs> HOMEC, which was, yeah. Which was short for home economics, and we had the same three things. We had uh, cooking, we had um, sewing, and yes, the boys learned how to sew as well, um, boys and girls, and we also had the financial aspect of it, and I thought <laughs> that was very important, and you make a very good point that it could be expanded beyond the very, very basics that we were taught in junior high. These topics about uh, financial literacy, basic investments, understanding the difference between inflows and outflows, budgeting, I think these are all things that could be injected into the, the curriculum that would benefit our young people. Okay, I have a guest on the line, and it's Joe, and I want to bring in, hey Joe, it's Ryan Miner on a minor detail. How are you tonight? Hey, Ryan. Uh, I am great. I, w I want to introduce you. You are a uh, – well, actually, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and uh, about your firm and kind of talk about what your expertise is in financial literacy and what you do on the daily. Sure. Uh, thank you very much for having me on your program. Uh, my background is I'm a certified uh, uh, financial planner and a certified public accountant. Uh, I my practice is really based on a mom and pop type of business. I only really deal with individuals from a tax preparation, tax planning, and then I work with those same individuals uh, year round from a financial planning standpoint. And a lot of the basic things that we're trying to get across on today's program is, you know, the framework of financial planning 
what is important to kind of get established, budgeting, and investing. So those are what I try to key in with my clients and try to, you know, help them along the way in uh, motivating them to achieve good financial skills. Joe, can you tell us a little bit about your firm and where you're located and uh, what what you would encourage, let's, we'll begin our conversation is, how would you encourage people to get in contact with you? Sure. My firm is uh, Jack's Financial. Our uh, office phone number is 301-738-1303. And as I said, we kind of specialize with working with the individuals. Um, so we, um, you know, we just got through a busy tax season, and I'm going to be starting to work with those same people and sitting down with them to discuss the various things that we're trying to get across on this program is how to do good financial management uh, to be able to achieve their goals and objectives into the future. Oh, that's great, Joe. I, I was, I'm, I'm reading your website, and by the way, I really, I really can appreciate your logo. It's very simple, and you're on your website. Uh, you have a, uh, a catchphrase that says your integrated individual approach and. As an individual, we want when we're looking at a financial firm to handle what I think is the most important aspect of our lives is managing our daily finances uh, and having someone who can advise us on smart economics. You want a team like yourself that can provide a broad perspective and benefits to the client. And some of your bullet points uh, have really caught my eye, and I can appreciate. Uh, so I want to dive into what you can do, what you do, and I hope I'm hoping that tonight you're able to share some strategies with our audience. So I want to talk about investing principles and strategies. Joe, as someone who is a new investor like myself, I'm I'm almost thirty. What is the beginning steps to inv- investing smartly, and what do we invest in, and how can we jump into this this world of investing? I mean, do do we pick up the Wall Street Journal or start reading it or watch some CNBC or do we go to someone like yourself and say, how can we start to build our portfolio so we can have a comfortable, a comfortable retirement? Well, I think uh, before we get uh, there, you really have to have kind of a build a framework of financial planning. And again, bef- uh, earlier in the program, you talked about budgeting, which I think is very important, but there, it comes really down to three basic principles to be able to establish yourself in a framework of financial planning. The first principle is basically pay yourself first. Mm-hmm. That can be done through you know, contributing into your 401k plan, your 403b, or t- your TSP uh, through government employees. I usually recommend that if you're just getting started to try to contribute at least 10% into those plans. But pay yourself means to help start saving for a car, start saving for a down payment on a house, you know, saving for, you know, an emergency fund. So that's the first principle is that in budgeting or whatever is pay yourself first. Uh, The second basic principle is don't use credit cards if you can't pay them off on a monthly basis. You know, don't spend outside your means. And then the third one is live within your means. Don't overspend on a monthly basis. So before we can get really started on an investment track, you really have to understand that you're spending within your means and you're saving uh, on an ongoing basis. And then 
once we get that established and you're putting money away, then we can move into the next step of how do you start putting money away and investing. Oh, that's absolutely a great approach. You talked about a 401k and a few others, and some people who are listening to this show, they may not know what a 401k is. So could you unwind some of those basic uh, savings accounts and those uh, the retirement planning accounts? Um, and, and let's just go back to the very nuts and bolts of what a 401k is, what it does, and uh, how we can contribute. Sure. Um, for most people living in this area, they either work for uh, a public company, a private company, or uh, kind of the governmental type of organizations. They're all kind of – they have different, uh, you know, code names. or uh, They're either called a 401k plan, a 403b plan, or a TSP. But for all intents and purposes, they're all the same, which means that you can contribute through an employer plan uh, normally on a tax-deductible basis, uh, money uh, that you save for your retirement. And in most, uh, most cases, an employer kind of contributes some money into those plans for you. So to, let's kind of stay with the government's plan, the TSP. Right. We have a lot of government employ, uh, employees kind of listening to this program. So basically uh, what a TSP plan does is that uh, you could put money away on a pre-tax basis. What that means is that for every $3 you contribute, the government kind of uh, – it only really costs you $2. Hmm. So you can contribute. Three dollars away, and because it's tax deductible on your tax return, because it's subtracted right from your W-2 form, it's really only costing you two dollars out of your uh, cash flow. So, in in most cases, the government contributes uh, matches five percent on the TSP account. So, if somebody contributes ten percent into their um, TSP account, or 401k, or 403b plan. It's really only costing them uh, 7% on a really cash flow standpoint. And then if the government is contributing 5%, so they can end up contributing seven, a net of 7% after taxes into their plan, and they basically have 15% in their retirement account. Okay. So those are tremendous uh, models that you can start wealth accumulation by taking advantage of the tax advantage savings uh, that is offered through these type of employer plans. Oh, Joe, when do most people start to dip into the 401k? I know that it's discour there's a commonality that it's discouraged to dip into early unless you have to in case of a dire emergency, but when do people start to to begin utilizing those funds within the 401k? Sure. Uh, if, you tr if you touch your 401k plan uh, for, most, for the most cases before you're 59 and a half, the government assesses you a 10% penalty as well as normal income taxes, uh, federal and state income taxes on that money. So they really try to discourage you from taking that money. But any time after 59 and a half, there's no longer that penalty for taking the money out early. So anybody that retires anytime after 59 and a half can access their account 
and then just pay normal income taxes depending on their tax bracket. Normally, uh, why the 401k plan is so attractive is that you're contributing it to you, you're contributing into the account when you're at the highest tax bracket that you're making. You're probably making your your highest wages, uh, you know, in in midlife, uh, and then when you contribute, when you retire, you probably fall into a lower tax bracket. So you're taking a deduction when you're in the highest tax bracket and pulling it out when you're in a lower tax bracket. And uh, that's what makes it so attractive. Okay. What? Let me ask you specifically about Maryland. Is Maryland a place that will help someone help or I, – I don't want to say harm, but is Maryland a good state to retire in? I think Maryland – uh, well, Maryland is a state where you have to pay federal taxes and state taxes. Right. They have done some adjustments to their estate mm-hmm. tax rules to make it more uh, less taxing on the more wealthier people to keep them in the state. I think that's what Larry Hogan's, uh, Governor Hogan's whole platform was, is to try to make it less taxing for the people in the state of Maryland. No and pun intended. Think, <laughs> no pun intended. So, uh, you know, so, he's, uh, so the last administration, O'Malley's administration, basically put into place where they're going to conform the estate taxes with the federal estate tax rules so the uh, so when you pass away, your heirs can get more of your money. Uh, but Maryland, you have to pay uh, normal federal and you know state taxes with that, and it's uh, unlike any other state. Delaware has state taxes, um, Pennsylvania has state taxes, uh, you know Virginia has state taxes. So we're not we're we're probably a little less than D.C., a little more than uh, Virginia as far as uh, income taxes go. Is that a concern of your clients, the, literally the geographical location of their retirement? I know some people decide to take their money and ship out and go to Florida. And uh, I, this is no attempt to, to be political. I'm, I'm just, it, is, Maryland, is Maryland a good place to, to continue in their retirement? Well, you know, I, I believe it has to be a personal decision. I mean, if you have no family ties with Maryland, you know, going down to, you know, going to uh, Delaware, which is a, a more f- tax-favored state, going to Florida, which is a more tax-favored state, that's where a lot of people do. As long as you stay out of the state of Maryland for a period of six months and a day, you're not a Maryland resident, and they they can get away from paying the state taxes. But what happens to so many people when they get older, they want to be around family to take care of them. So even though they may have established a Florida resident while they were in their retirement years, when they basically need to uh, for really, um, you know, medical care, they're going to really come back to the state of Maryland if they have family here, and that's really what it counts. So I just feel having family around to care for you is more important than basically uh, what it costs you in taxes. Absolutely. Joe, I want to bring in my friend and who is also the president of Change Montgomery County. We're 
live in my home. We have a nice little studio set up here. Frank Howard has been in the financial world for quite a long time, and he is very familiar with the financial instruments that are will help people to diversify their portfolio, uh, their portfolios. And I want to talk specifically about some of those specific financial instruments that will help people begin to diversify and to expand. And so Frank, Frank is here with me. And uh, Frank, what you and John, you and Joe have a, a lot of experience in setting up people to make the right, right financial decisions using certain instruments. What do you think? Uh, that's right, Brian. As a matter of fact, all of my adult life, it seems, uh, people have come to me asking for my um, uh, input, my advice, my counsel. And of course, you have to be careful uh, when you're not a financial professional. So I defer to Joe, who's on the line. This is what he does for a living. He is a licensed uh, professional. So I defer to him. However, I can't resist. Uh, you've teed it up nicely for me, uh, hopefully hitting it out of the park. I believe uh, as uh, one of the owners of my company uh, and being the leader of our 401k committee, that uh, there are a number of, as, as you put it, vehicles that employees can t take advantage of, and you don't have to make a whole lot of money to take advantage of them. You don't have to squirrel away uh, a huge portion of your income, especially when you're young and starting out, your 20s, 30s, 40s, you've got kids at home, you're saving for college, you're trying to save for your retirement, you're paying your bills, it's, you're paying down, uh, let's face it, college debt, uh, a lot, student loans, that's a lot all at once, and some people say it's too much. However, if you do make the commitment, as Joe said, to pay yourself first, even if it's a small amount of money, especially if you start early, and I'm sure Joe would agree with this, it's mathematics and it's, it's been proved, and you can read about it all over the internet, just Google it. When you start early in your 20s or 30, early 30s at the latest, and you put money aside into a 401k, or if you work for the government, the Thrift Savings Plan, the TSP, um, IRAs, whether it's a traditional IRA, or a Roth IRA, uh, 529 college savings plan, that money when it grows tax deferred and you don't pay taxes until you take it out probably much later um, in life, uh, it, it can have an opportunity to grow way beyond what you would think initially when you look at the amount you're putting in out of your um, biweekly paycheck. Right. Joe, do you, you want to follow up? I couldn't agree with uh, Frank anymore, but, uh, you know, I always kind of tell my clients there's a cost of procrastination. So if somebody <laughs> is able to save $100 a month versus waiting five years to save $100 a month, when we're talking 30 to 40 years down the road, that that money could be compounding, you know, earning anywhere from, you know, 3 to 6 to 10%, depending on the markets, I mean, uh, $100 a month savings can equate to like two to $300,000 30 or 40 years down the road. So there's definitely a cost of procrastination by waiting uh, to go ahead and do these basic good financial maneuvers. Sure. Uh, let's, let's go into an issue that we just discussed, college savings. And I want to ask you, what do you think the best approach is for parents and for young guys like me? I'm, I'm in graduate school now, and, of course, my loans are going to be deferred until I finish school. And I'm, I'm hoping to finish my MBA by uh, December of 2016. 
And what is the best approach to start saving, and especially for parents at an undergraduate level when they're 18, should they start (laughs) right away when they're born? I mean, we're talking about some parents begin to save in the womb. Right. Well, I believe we're very fortunate to be in the state of Maryland, and they have an excellent 529 plans. You can call up, you can look up the, the state of Maryland website and look at, uh, I think, uh, into the, the Maryland's 529 plans. There's excellent vehicles. There's two basic vehicles for the 521, the 529 plans. One is the tuition plan, and the other one is the investment plan. And I always encourage my clients first to do the tuition plan, which means that there is two basic elements that erode away or or hinder uh, our ability to save. One is inflation, and the other one is investment risk. And what the state of Maryland through the tuition plan does is say, you give us X amount of dollars, and in 18 years, when your child is ready to go to school, no matter what it costs, it will be enough. So when the state is willing to take the inflation risk and the investment risk on the money, I'm more than willing to give them that, that, op, that, uh, that investment. So I believe and that these 529 tuition plans, and you can buy them semester at a time, you can pay for them over a period of time, or you can lump them in. And don't forget, grandparents love to fund <laughs> college for their grandchildren. They so do. basically, don't be shy in asking <laughs> for parents to help contribute to this 529 tuition plans because they love to say that they help their, their grandkids to go to college. Um, so that's the tuition side, and the investment side is what you fund for the room and board. Now, mm. the investment side, you don't have the guarantees that you do on the tuition side. It's just like any other mutual fund. What a mutual fund is, it's to give me an example of how I do it for my clients, picture a one pencil in your hand. And it's very easy to break one pencil at a time. But if you have a hundred pencils together in a group, it's very, very difficult to break that whole hundred pencil group. And that's essentially what a mutual fund is. A mutual fund is that it's a grouping of a lot of individual companies like an IBM, a McDonald's, a Facebook. You know, it's a grouping of all of these individual companies into one fund. And if, let's say, one or two are not performing well, there's going to be one or two that are performing very, very well, and then the rest kind of, kind of, uh, stay with what the market is going to yield. So uh, uh, a mutual fund is specifically designed for small investors to kind of build up that wealth uh, that they're going to need in retirement. Wow, that's great information. And my parents, I know that they got started early using the same instruments, and I was so blessed and fortunate to be able to have the opportunity to advance my education by going to college. And now that um, mom and dad are are not paying for uh, my my second go around for graduate school, um, I'm certainly paying attention to everything that I need to do now in order to successfully pay off my loans that will soon come 
beginning in January of 2017. Uh, a lot of questions that people probably come to you and ask, and I'd imagine this would be uh, within the top five, can I retire early? And the question is, can I retire early? What say you? Well, you know, retirement early is just a, a basic formula. Uh, you know, as you said earlier in your program, basically if you need X amount of dollars to live on, let's say you um, assess that you're going to need $5,000 a month to live on. To be able to retire someday early, you have to look at your investments that you have accumulated and understanding that the markets go up and down in the future. So most financial experts say that you should only withdraw about 4% from your assets for those assets to last you a lifetime because the key of retirement is not so much assets, but it's a steady paycheck. So uh, most experts say that, you know, you shouldn't withdraw more than 4% to guarantee that income stream for a lifetime. So a million dollars, if you have accumulated a million dollars, that's going to generate roughly about $40,000 for you to live on. So if you need basically uh, $80,000 to live on, now that is after taxes, you're going to probably have to save two and a half million dollars to generate $80,000 net after taxes to be able to retire. So when your retirement, when your savings equal what it takes you to cover your monthly nut or your monthly expenses, that's when you're in a position to retire. But before then, you may not be able to. Gotcha. Uh, in Montgomery County, uh, I, in fact, I did a show on uh, there was a poverty show, and we talked about statistics that the average to live comfortably, to live what they consider to be middle class in Montgomery County, a family would need to make around $86,000, and that might be just slightly off, but that's the statistic that I that's has stuck into my head. So if a person, let's just say that uh, an average person in Montgomery County, maybe in their, that's 37 to to 45 range, they're making about $80,000 a year. And how much money should they set aside for retirement? And when would they be able to retire on that? And I, and I apologize, I'm just, I know I might be giving you an arbitrary number, but um, I'm just setting you up so that you could explain to the audience about how much money really tangibly do we need to, to set aside every month to retire comfortably with? Uh, well, uh, the, you have to understand is that uh, when you're uh, retiring, there's a couple of different elements or uh, uh, assets that you're going to have. Social Security is mm. a key element. So Social Security, uh, if you're in your 60s, your retirement age is 66. If you're uh, below 60, your retirement age right now is 67. Mm. And if you fully fund your retirement in your Social Security, which right now is you have to earn a roughly about $120,000 to fully fund your Social Security, by the time you retire, you're going to generate somewhere around Twenty-five to twenty-eight hundred dollars a month in Social Security benefits. So that is something that you can put towards the ability to live. 
and then if let's say you need an extra twenty five hundred or five you know twenty five hundred dollars to live, it's just mathematical. You just back up and say, uh, you know, for you know twenty five hundred, you have to have about five hundred, uh, you know, you know about five to six hundred thousand dollars saved to be able to generate that other twenty five hundred dollars, which is is going to enable you to put money away. So to say how much you would need to put away on a monthly basis, I think you have to be looking at, um, you know, you put up about, you know, a thousand dollars a month, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to be able to retire in the long run. Uh, and that's through tax advantage vehicles or just personal savings. So I want to ask you about life insurance. Uh, it's, it's something that uh, it's offered in many different outlets and venues. And in fact, I, as a member of the the, uh, the worldwide Knights of Columbus, I, I was given the opportunity to purchase life insurance. Is that something that every family or every individual should have? I think life insurance is a, a critical piece to your foundation type of vehicles. Uh, when I work with clients, I deal with four basic elements for a, a sound financial uh, foundation. One is um, having a will. Uh, the second, having disability insurance. Third is life insurance. And then the fourth is an umbrella or a major liability policy. So those are what we try to establish first in putting together a solid foundation for a client. And how I usually kind of tell the clients what they need in life insurance is basically I usually say you first have to have enough life insurance to pay for all of your financial obligations. So you leave your spouse in a position where they're basically debt-free. So if you own a house that is that you have a mortgage on of $400,000 and you have car payments, you want to make sure that you have a basic coverage of roughly in the neighborhood of four to $500,000. And then for every child you have, you have to also increase your life insurance because you have more of a, a long-term insurance needs. You have to cover you know, the daily child care expenses, taking care of uh, the kids, uh, babysitting, and then eventually college education. So I usually say, depending on where they're going to school, you need to fund an additional 500 to a million dollars per child uh, if they're going to be taken care of properly. If God forbid uh, you were to die suddenly. Yeah, absolutely. That is a concern that that I have. You want to be. You want to ensure that your family is well suited uh, in the case of uh, something tragic happening, where you would. Uh, you know, something would you die instantly because we always want to be prepared for that um, unfortunate uh, and untimely possibility. I, I want to ask you a question. What do you think about charitable donations uh, during life and in a will? How does that factor into uh, our basic financial literacy? Well, financial planning, I mean, uh, charitable contributions is a tax-deductible item. Uh, so when it, uh, just like your 401k plan for every dollar uh, for every three dollars you contribute you get uh, it only costs you two under the charitable contributions if you can contribute three dollars 
Uncle Sam will refund you back um, uh, $1. So I'm, I'm very much uh, an advocate of, you know, contributing to charities, uh, you know, because I believe they be, uh, do a lot of good for the communities, and we all need to support either our churches or our, um, or our other charitable works to sure. be able to help, uh, you know, a social need. Well, change Montgomery County, we are a 501c4. If someone were to give change Montgomery County, let's say, $100, is that considered a deduction? Yes. If they are able to itemize their deductions, they will be able to deduct that on their Schedule A of their 1040. And uh, by con- so let's do it simple numbers. If they contribute $300 to you, they get back a $100 refund on their tax return. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Let's break it down to the nuts and bolts of basic financial planning. Joe, what is a budget? How do we set a budget? And what are what should we include in our budget? And how often should we do it? Um, weekly, monthly, bi-monthly? How, how does that work? Well, you know, a budget is a basic financial instrument that is very, very difficult to implement. The bottom line is, you know, I I tell my clients about budgeting, but I'm not about to tell my client that after a hard day's work, uh, the husband and wife can't go out to dinner because they're so tired or they can't buy their kids clothes or take them out to the movies. If you kind of get so restrictive on your budgeting, that's when it doesn't work. So I look at it a much bigger framework of budgeting and I bring in my first principle that I said earlier, which is pay yourself first. That's how I institute budgeting for my clients. I say, okay, before any other bill gets paid, before the mortgage gets paid, before the car payment gets paid, let's put away money into your 401K plan and let's put money away into a personal savings account. And hopefully they can put away anywhere from you know, two to $300 When I first got started, I was only able to put away $50 a month. But you Mm -hmm. start putting money away, and then you force yourself to spend whatever is left. So even though there's nothing left at the end of the month, because some months there's going to be more expenses, like, uh, you know, uh, a broken pipe, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, know, new brakes in the car, all of these extra things come up all the time. Well, that means that you may not be able to go to the movies that month. That means you may not be able to buy clothes, uh, you know, new outfits that month because you have to spend within your means. But uh, the next month, you know, if, let's say, those emergencies don't come up, then you can kind of basically do those little extras to spoil yourself. But in either case, as long as you don't overspend at the end of the month, you have accomplished your objective in the beginning of the month by putting money aside, and even though there's nothing left at the end of the month, you've still accomplished your goal at the beginning of the month. So that's what I emphasize to my clients. I say the most important principle is pay yourself first, and if you have nothing left at the end of the month, that's still okay because you have accomplished your goals up front. I, I love it, I, and I want to break down basic expenses in a, in a household. So. 
Uh, our family, we're a family of four, uh, mom, dad, two kids. We have, you know, there's a mortgage payment. There is a, a car payment. There is a cell phone payment. We have groceries. We have uh, occasionally a credit card bill. Uh, and we tried, and, and soon I'll have, of course, I'll have my, my student loans. Is that sound about average for uh, a family? Is that the expenses that uh, your clients come to you and say, this is how, this is what I have, this is how much I'm making, and uh, this is how much I need to save? Is, is that how you, uh, is that how clients approach you with those types of needs? Sure. So then we, we kind of work at those needs. We look at their, their income that they're generating. They, we look at their expenses and then try to help them allocate some money to pay themselves first. And then they're controlling, you know, the, the uncertainties on a monthly basis because you can't cut yourself so close that there's not a little give in your budget to take advantage of these emergencies or to kind of spoil yourself a little bit. But yes, I think you've uh, you accurately described what a, a budget involves, and then you have to have some, you know, uh, flexibility in that budget. Or if there's no flexibility, you're going to you're going to throw up your hands and say, "I can't do this and not do anything." So that's why you have to give yourself a little bit of flexibility. But I just find paying yourself first up front, putting the money away, you're the first goal that gets accomplished. Then trying to manage whatever money is remaining to cover all of those essentials and some extras uh, seems to work a little bit better. Joe, the, the biggest expense of our lives will typically be our, our home, our home purchase. And someone like myself, if they came to you, I'm, I'll be 30 in November, and you have a young guy like myself who reaches out to you. We sit down and we have a discussion. And I say, hey, Joe, you know, I'm interested to buy a house. I'm making this amount of money. How, what would you advise your client? A lot of times people make poor financial decisions almost right off the bat, um, to, to use that uh, phrase, uh, because they overspend on a house that they can't afford, then they go into financial jeopardy, and then they end up losing everything, filing bankruptcy, and it's just a, it, it, they, it's just a decadent financial decision and just evolves into chaos. So if someone is looking to buy a home, how much do you think they should consider and how much of their income? Well, I usually have a, uh, a basic formula that I would like uh, for my clients to achieve uh, is that I don't want them to overextend themselves because you're right. You don't want to be mortgage poor because right. then you can't do a lot of just basic standard of living type of activities. So I usually say I don't want them to extend themselves more than two and a half times gross income on a mortgage. I find that if they just uh, extend themselves and take a mortgage of two and a half times their income, so let's say they, the husband and wife has an income of $150,000, mm -hmm. uh, $150,000 times 2.5%, they can afford a mortgage of about $375,000. Okay. So that's what I encourage them to use as a guide on what they feel they can afford when they're looking for a mortgage. Hmm. Okay. Uh, let's talk about car payments. A lot of young people will have these car payments, and they'll buy uh, <laughs> these outrageous car. You know, it, it's when you're young, you want a nice car. Uh, you want to. You want to. You, you want to be hip. You want to show off in front of your friends. But let's be realistic. 
Let's be let's make a financially responsible decision. How much should people be spending on uh, on their vehicles? And I mean, <laughs> when you have an op, look, I, I I made this hard choice. I've always wanted you know a BMW, and in fact, my first car was that, and I. I want to shake my parents for <laughs> buying me that as a kid. It was a it was a used car, and it was in poor shape, but I had to have it. Of course, I'm the only child, so I'm speaking from experience. I'm almost embarrassed to admit that. Nonetheless, uh, about four years ago, I made a decision to buy uh, a Hyundai, which was much less expensive, and uh, I love it. So, what what is some what is how much should people be considered? Uh, what is considered to be financially responsible when purchasing a vehicle? Well, you know, that I find is the worst mistake a lot of young people make because they, <laughs> yeah. they get out of school, they feel like, uh, you know, they've, they've been through four years of drudgery and they have to reward themselves. So the first thing they do is they go out and buy a brand-new car and they have big mortgage uh, uh, car payments, and it seems like they can never get out of that debt afterwards. So. Yeah. I never encourage any of my clients to buy new. I mm. always tell them to buy a car that's roughly two to three years old, and uh, and you get your best value for your dollar. But uh, they have to be financially responsible. You know, you know, until they can afford a car, you know, a BMW, they shouldn't be buying a buy a uh, <laughs> BMW. They should be buying a Hyundai. So. You know, that's what I encourage the clients to do is to and then to try to make payments where they they can take out a either a three or five year car loan where they can make it comfortable. You know, comfortable would be a couple hundred dollars a month payment mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh to begin with, uh for, you know, most people. Uh and then try to pay the car off, you know, in less time. Make extra right. payments a car loan is not something that's tax deductible. So people don't understand that. We talked before in a 401k plan where it's tax deductible, where for every $3 you invest, it only costs you 2 When you buy a car and that's not tax deductible, to, to pay $300 a month, you have to make $500 a month and then pay taxes on that money to net 300 to make a payment. So your three hundred dollar car payment is really only is really costing you five five hundred and fifty dollars a month of earnings right. to make car payment. So to me, I just feel a car for young people is usually the beginning of their financial downturn, and <laughs> I encourage young people or even you know my all my clients to buy responsibly into something that they can pay off. I usually like to tell them to pay off it in less than three years. If they can afford the cash flow and pay it off in three years, that's the type of car that's right for you. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And let me ask you a question. I know you have concerns. People say, well, we budgeted. And like you discussed earlier, oh, my gosh, Joe, there's nothing left at the end of the month. Should people freak out about that? Well, if they set their goals of paying themselves first, and they have put three to five, uh, you know, fifty dollars a month away, five hundred dollars away, whatever they've put away on a, a monthly basis, if they have nothing left, they should feel good because they have accomplished their goal up front. Had they not, uh, you know, basically um, paid themselves first 
and there's nothing left, or if they're going into credit card debt to kind of meet their monthly expenses, they're living too high, meaning that mm-hmm. they have to start looking and examining what they're doing on a monthly basis and cut back because it's just a formula for disaster. And, and Joe, is all, some, we've often heard the, the myth that uh, all debt is bad, but is that true? Well, you know, bottom line is even though debt is deductible, there's still a penalty for borrowing. So even though your house mortgage is deductible, there's still a penalty for borrowing because, you know, the interest that you're paying, you know, you're still only getting a third back from a refund, so it's still interest that you pay out of pocket. The only thing that I usually tell my clients is because from an affordability standpoint, the the only two acceptable debts are a house payment and a car payment because Mm -hmm. these are things that you need to to have uh, to have a certain standard of living, to accumulate a certain wealth, and you need something that's safe to drive around in. But other than those two acceptable debts of a house and a car payment, uh, any other type of debt is really what I consider bad debt. Bad debt, like credit cards. Spending on... Because it's not tax deductible for you. That's right. And uh, I remember my grandparents... uh, My grandparents were born in the uh, late 20s and and 30s, and uh, my grandfather always said, he's 89, he'll be 90 in July, he goes... Well, in my day, I don't want to owe nothing to no one, and and that was his. That's the way it goes. And they never wanted to. They never had credit cards. Um, and but it's much different now. I mean, I I have a credit card for emergency incidentals. Uh, you know, I keep a couple different credit cards with me at all times, just in case, because you never know when you're going to get a flat tire or the brakes are going to go bad, and you need that. But in that case, Joe, what what's your suggestion? Should we pay it off? Immediately, should we wait? Because I know some people, they get into this credit card limbo where they're only making those $20 monthly payments, and they have amassed a bill of, say, $1,000. And I don't consider that would be, to me, bad debt. Oh, it's, it's very, very bad debt. And again, when I first take on a new client, the first thing we work with is that if I have clients with what I call bad debt, uh, credit card debt or other than a house and a mortgage type of debt, we work very diligently to try to get them to pay that off before they can really turn their attention to start investing into their future. Um, so, you know, I, I try to encourage them that, uh, you know, they have to live within their means and uh, to try to pay this credit card debt off as quickly as possible because, uh you know, I encourage people to use credit cards as long as they can pay it off on a monthly basis because there's a lot of perks. I have a right. Southwest uh, airline card. Mm-hmm. I haven't paid for a Southwest airline uh, flight for the last three years wow. because my points are enough to um, pay the, uh, the the ticket price. So there's a lot of perks that you can get from credit cards, so I encourage you to use them responsibly but as long as you can pay them off on a monthly basis, you know, that's the way you use them responsibly. Now, realizing emergencies always come up. You know, uh, your, your car, you need new tires, you know, you're, you have some problem with your windows and you have to replace them. But then you have to, if you charge those, 
you have to really be focused that you're going to pay those off, those credit cards off, in a matter of two months, three months, six months, one year, but you have to really focus in trying to get that credit card debt uh, off your back very quickly. And that's that's a major concern, especially for young people. They so soon, they get swallowed up in this massive hole of debt, and it seems like it's inescapable. They can never get out, and that's a problem because then it dips into affecting a credit score, which leads me into my next question. Uh, Joe, what is a good credit score for someone that has a house, has a car, and maybe a couple credit cards? What, what say you? I would say a credit score in the 700s. I believe is pretty much a, a solid credit score. Mm -hmm. uh, below 700 is, you know, you're you're getting into kind of, uh, you know, you're you're not going to get your best rates if you go to uh, borrow money for a house. So having a credit score of somewhere in the 700s is uh, usually pretty solid. Yeah, that's uh, you know, thankfully my I'm, I'm smiling because uh, I'm there. Thank God <laughs> and. Uh, I, we're, we're, we're about the three-minute mark left into the show, and uh, I, I'd like to have your, your final thoughts on financial, living a fiscally responsible life and planning for the future, and uh, I, could you, could you uh, leave us with uh, something important for us to remember? Sure. Uh, well, and one thing that I'd like to say is that if any of your listeners um, have questions after the show, they can always get in touch with us. You know, again, uh, just to repeat, uh, we're Jack's Financial. We're located right in Rockville, and uh, you can look us up on our website, and I'd be more than happy to sit down with anybody uh, to help them. Uh, usually I have uh, an introductory meeting that's no charge just to see if we can help you. So I, I extend that offer to all your listeners that I'd be more than happy to kind of sit down and go through their goals and objectives, and that's really where we first start out is we, we sit down and I listen to the clients and I understand what long-term goals, what short-term goals they want to accomplish. We then look at their current assets and see if their current assets are positioned correctly. And if they're not, we're going to make some recommendations on how to reposition their assets and then help them uh, establish a savings pattern for wealth accumulation that they can then carry into the future to be able to uh, establish their retirement goals because the bottom line for most of my clients is that they have two major objectives. One objective for most people is that they want to educate their kids without going broke, and the mm -hmm. second objective is that they want to retire comfortably someday. So those are usually the major objectives that we're sitting down and trying to, to, uh, to help clients achieve over their lifetimes. Absolutely. So one more time, tell us where we can contact you. What is what is the phone number to reach out to your agency? Sure. Our, our uh, phone number is area code 301-738-1303. And you can, fo uh, you can uh, pull us up on the website at jacksfinancial.com. That's J-A-C- Q-U-E-S, that's J-A-C-Q-U-E-S, financial.com. Well, I really appreciate you joining us tonight. You provided excellent insight into the financial process, and uh, I hope you decide to come back and join us again. I would love to. Thank you very All much right. for having me.
You bet. Thank you. So that was a really informative last hour. Frank, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ryan. My pleasure. Thank and, you, Joe. And I know that we're going to be coming back, and Frank, he'll be back for another show. So again, my name is Ryan Miner. This is a minor detail. Thank you, and have a great evening.